Genesis chapter 16. Before I actually get into the verses, I'm going to throw out a couple axioms to you. Things that are relevant to today's scripture. Sayings that are worth remembering and holding on to as you walk with the Lord. The first one is, there is no right way to do a wrong thing. And the second one is that it's seldom easy to do what is right, and it's seldom right to do what is easy. Now, we've been tracking with Abram for four chapters now. Abram, that man that's called the father of our faith, as told to us in Romans chapter 4. And to understand today's chapter, we need to be reminded of the last four chapters, how we got to where we are today. You see, Abram may have been born in Ur. He was born there, but he was living in Haran when the Lord called him. The city Ur is along the Euphrates River, right along the Persian Gulf. It's a, um, it's a beach community. Haran, by contrast, is in the high desert in what is today south, um, southern Turkey. And it was there at the age of 70 that the Lord first spoke to that idolater, called him to be a child of God, and sent him on an adventure. And saints, if you don't know this yet, walking with the Lord is an adventure. And if you don't know that yet, you may not be walking with the Lord. But during the 10 years that had transpired since that call, he had traveled as far south as Egypt, and then after a time there, settled around the Oaks of Mamre, which is on the west side of that Dead Sea. And it was there that he first erected that altar to God, as told to us in Genesis 13. And it was there that that lone survivor of the sacking of Sodom found him in Genesis 14. And it was there that he returned after being met by the king of Salem on that return from rescuing Lot. And then in Genesis 15, we have that watershed moment in the life of Abram. That chapter is the telling of Abram, uh, I'm sorry, of God visiting Abram. The word of the Lord, as we're told in verse 1 of chapter 15, communing with Abram, cutting covenant with him, concerning him being the father of a great multitude, and the promise of a land given to him as his children. In verse 1 there in chapter 15, we hear God telling Abram, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And then verses 2 and 3, we're told what it was that Abram feared. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my own household will be my heir. And then after speaking those words, and he spoke them out loud. After finally expressing his deepest fear to God, that fear that God already knew Abram was dealing with, it was then that God cut covenant with Abram and told him in no uncertain terms, that which I have promised, I will bring to pass. And that brings us to today's chapter. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. 
go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now verse 1 contains facts. There's two of them there in verse 1. The first one is that Sarai was barren. The second fact is that she had a female slave that she had obtained when she was in Egypt, named Hagar. And the facts of verse 1 are the catalyst for verse 2. But we need to deal with what is said in verse 2. You see, women have gotten this bad rap, by and large, of being illogical, emotionally driven, and very often, this is why we are told that Sarai said what she did in verse 2. That she was just being emotionally driven in her accusation against God. And then again, in her solution to the problem of not having children. But let's first begin with that accusation that she's made. Was the charge being made against God that she was unable to bear children because of him? Was that an accurate charge? Or was she just being irrational, illogical, emotional? Was she just acting like Satan and bringing a false charge against God, saying that he was withholding good from her? Is there any validity to the charge that she has just levied against God? Is he? Is he the one who is responsible for her barrenness? This is a really important question that we really need to deal with. Really need to deal with. I mean, it's just this little part of this verse. Something that she said, but there's an accusation there that is far-reaching. Because every one of us, every one of us, will deal with things in our lives that are going to be either heartbreaking or hard. Sometimes both at the same time. And we need to get this straight in our head now. We must ask and answer this question. Does God control all things that happen in his creation? The question that we're asking is this. Is God sovereign? Really, truly sovereign? To answer this question, I'm going to use one text as my proof text. And then I'm going to support that text using other texts. My proof text is Ephesians 1, verse 11, which tells us, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to him, according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Let's break that verse down. In him... That is, Christ, we have obtained an inheritance because we were predestined to obtain that inheritance. And we did this because of the purpose of the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, in context, and we should always take every verse in context. In context, this verse, Ephesians 1, 11, is speaking of our salvation. And it's the, that's the first part of a sentence that speaks of that very thing. 
and it does apply to our salvation. But found in this verse is not only the how of our salvation, but also the how of everything in our life and in life. And you may be asking yourself, well, how can you be sure that's the correct interpretation of that text? Because of other texts. And once again, if you don't hold that the Bible, the Word of God, that it is the Word of God and that it is inerrant, inspired, and flawless in the original manuscripts, if you do not hold that this, this is the rule and standard of the life of the church and every person who is predestined by God to be his child, if you don't hold to that, then I would have to ask you, on what basis do you say that you are a child of God? After all, you can't trust this. But the word of God is the word of God. And it is truth. All of it. And it is the standard, the plumb line, the rule, the authority for the church. And not only the church, but for every saint. Now, here are those supporting texts that prove that the all things that are spoken of in that Ephesians verse means all things. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man <clears throat> plans his way. The Lord establishes his steps. But you may be thinking, that's not very convincing, David. I mean, we can understand that to mean that God approves of the actions that men plan. Kind of like the plans that Sarai has for Hagar and her hubby. Well, a couple more verses then. Proverbs 20, 24. A man's steps are from the Lord. How, can, um, how then can man understand his way? Well, this verse takes that last one and flips it on its head. This verse says that it is God who is planning the steps of man and not given the plans by man to okay or not. And then we read in Proverbs 16, 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And no, that's not the verse that can be used to say that God approves gambling. What it means there can be best illustrated by how Tracy and I often make decisions. Even very large, life-changing decisions. We Rochambeau. We don't know what we're supposed to do. Can't get a clear understanding. There's a couple different options how we should go. We Rochambeau. You know. Rock, paper, scissors. Very often, what we'll do when we're just faced with, we don't really know which direction the Lord wants to take us in, but we know that God is sovereign. We will, each one of us, say, okay, if we're supposed to go this way, you be yes, I'll be no, and then we row, jam, bow. And you are saying, you guys are idiots. No wonder your life looks like it does. <laughs> but in all actuality, though, we are, by faith, taking God at his word. 
we are using that verse 1633 as the means for him to be able to speak his will into our life. We truly believe that God is sovereign over everything and that everything that happens is his will. And if you think that you believe in Reformed theology, if you think that you believe in the sovereignty of God, use that as a means for decision the next time you want to take a job or not, want to move or not, want to marry a woman or not. So a couple more verses that prove that God is sovereign over all things. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And what that verse is saying is that no matter what a person, all people, saved or otherwise, the plans that they make, they are all under the control of the Lord. That everything that happens only happens because it is the will of God. And that truth is a truth that is fleshed out in Jeremiah 10, 23. I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who directs, who walks to direct his steps. And you may be thinking to yourself, okay, but this might be the case, that God is God over all those good things that occur in life, but never the hard things. And if that's the way that you think, then you've got to deal with Amos 3.6. Is a trumpet blown in the city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? How about Lamentations 3.37? Who has spoken it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Or how about Proverbs 16.4? Yahweh has made everything for its purpose. Even the wicked for the day of trouble. But you're thinking, okay, David, but is this how the apostles, you know, the, this is all old, new, that's all Old Testament stuff. Is, what about the apostles? How did they see God? How did they see him being sovereign? I mean, Paul said he was sovereign over salvation in that Ephesians verse, but did they really actually believe that he was sovereign over the bad things as well? The bad things? Well, I'm going to submit to you James 4, verses 13 through 15. James says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, and this is what that biblically inspired writer, how he says we should speak. Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. What James is telling us there is that although we may make plans, we may think in our head that things are going to work out this specific way, we should humbly submit to the reality that only God's will will come to pass. And nothing, absolutely nothing, Nothing that he does not will can come to pass. But the question still remains, 
does God ordain some things to happen? You know, the good and pleasant things. And then the hard, those difficult things, those things that we say are bad. Does he just allow them to happen? Like he kind of turns a blind eye to them. Well, grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 22 with me. Luke 22 is filled with both good things, the institution of the Lord's Supper, the assigning of the kingdom to those that have stayed with Jesus, and then some bad or hard things as well, such as Satan entering Judas, the dispute over who is the greatest by the remaining disciples. But what I want to draw your attention to can be found in verse 31, beginning in verse 31. Now, verse 31 follows hard on the heels of the disciples arguing about which one of them was the humblest or the best Christian, something that we would never do. We would never judge ourselves, our walk with the Lord, by looking at another person and saying, man, I got it going on. We would never do that. But it's after telling us that the apostles had this argument that Jesus told them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Verses 25 through 30. And then right after that, right after saying that, Jesus turns his head and looks at Simon Peter and says this, Simon, Simon, Behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he may sift you like wheat. Simon Peter, that man who would become a pillar of the church, a man who was very strong-willed, strong of body, strong of faith, was also very self-assured. He was evidently one of those men, perhaps even the ringleader, the loudest voice of those who were saying that they were the greatest, the humblest. And in front of these men, Jesus has just rocked his world. Satan is asked to have you in order to sift you like wheat. And if that statement doesn't make your stomach turn over within you, I don't know what will. This is news that nobody wants to hear. This is the kind of news that will turn your brown eyes blue, that will cause you to lose your lunch, that will make the most sunshiniest of days very dark, very fast. And then, the hero of our faith, the hero of Peter's faith, he follows that statement with how he, Jesus, has just acted in this situation. His answer to that request to have Peter Because that's what Satan did. Satan's demanding to have Peter is his acknowledgement that he can do nothing outside of the will of God. And what was the answer to his demand? 
What did Jesus tell Peter? What did he say that he did? Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. Don't worry, I rebuked him in my name. No, Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but I just slapped him around a bit and told him to get lost. Verse 32, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Wait a minute. You prayed for me? That's it? I mean, that's your answer to Satan desiring to sift me like wheat? And then Peter, being Peter, responds very arrogantly. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And then Jesus reveals to Peter, and all, again, this is a conversation that is happening amongst the disciples. All that were sitting there, just how that sifting was going to occur, and exactly what it means that he had prayed for Peter. Jesus said to you, said to him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. And Peter was sifted. The demand by Satan to sift him was the will of the Lord. And that he was sifted, that he did go through the sifting process, was with the full knowledge and consent of the Lord. So what was the sifting by Satan? It was the denial of being linked to Jesus three times in one night because he was afraid of man. He did deny Christ, and this was the will of God in his life and the lives of all that were there, and even us. Satan entered Judas. Judas betrayed Jesus and died in unrepentance of his sin. He knew that what he had done was wrong, that his plans didn't, and his plans had not gone, gone according to his plan. So in shame, disgrace, self-centeredness, he kills himself. Was that the preordained plan of God? Did Judas have a choice in all of that? Well, if so, then the foretelling of the betrayal of Christ in Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13, that's a pretty amazing trick. If so, then this statement by Jesus concerning his betrayal in Mark 14 is either an amazing guess or he just learned information, new information, as he looked down that corridor of time at the decision that Judas was going to make. But the reality is that he is sovereign over the actions of all men. And if we have heartache, if we have a heartache and heartburn over this truth, if we think that this is unfair and it can't be right, then how is it that we can take comfort in verses that tell us that he works all things for our good? Because again, Go back to that statement I made. If you have not gone through heartbreak and hard times yet, you will. And how are we supposed to take comfort in that 
when the Bible tells us that he works all things for our good, that he has prepared good works for us to walk in. Satan sifted Peter. Peter betrayed Jesus, just like Judas did. But his betrayal, in his betrayal, his heart, which belonged to the Lord, was broken over the realization of just how much of a sinner he was. And he went away weeping, and he turned. And when he turned, he strengthened his brothers. And it was in that sifting, it was in the ordained actions of Satan that the sin in Peter was revealed. It was in the sifting process that his pride was revealed. And it was in that sifting process that he was finally broken of his prideful self. And it was in the grace of God, the grace shown through the intercession of Christ on behalf of Peter, that Peter was able to stand. He did not stand on his own. He was able to turn able to strengthen his brothers in the strength that he had been strengthened with. We are told of the denial by Peter in three of the four Gospels. But in the Gospel of Luke, we are given an insight into how Peter was able to overcome that sifting process. In chapter 22, we read, Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. This is the third time that he denied Christ. And immediately while he was speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And at that moment, Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly, verses 60 through 62. Do you think for a second that the look of Jesus, do you think that it was one of, I told you so? Do you think that that look of Christ was a look of disappointment. He turned and he looked with compassion on that man who was being sifted for his good and for the glory of God. And in repentance, Peter wept over his sin. But he did not flee the family of God. He remained you ever think about this? He was with the apostles when the word came that Jesus had risen from the grave. And is it any wonder then that he was the man that was racing John to the tomb? No. What Sarai said was accurate. She was barren. And this was the will of God. She had been married for well over 10 years and had failed to give Abram an heir. And it wasn't by chance. It wasn't due to a medical condition. It wasn't due to an accident that had happened earlier in her life and that rendered her infertile. She was barren because God had prevented her from bearing children. And when the Lord made that promise to Abram, that he would be a mighty nation. Abram couldn't figure out how that was going to be because Sarai was barren. So he took Lot with him. And as we saw in chapter 13, Lot was not the means that the Lord would make the impossible reality. But the taking of Lot with Abram, that was the will of God for Lot and for Abram. Even though Lot was not the means that God would fulfill 
that covenant promise. You see, Lot was the catalyst to the meeting of Abram and the king of Salem. No Lot in Sodom, no rescue from the northern kings, no meeting between Abram and Melchizedek. And just as Abram couldn't figure out how he was to become a mighty nation, neither could Sarai. Her being barren, her being the wife of Abram, her having a slave named Hagar, who had been given to her by Pharaoh when she, Sarai, had been sold to him, these were all the will of God. And now, now we finally know the backstory behind the facts of verse 2, which brings us to verses 3 and 4. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to the Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And as she saw that she conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Abram listened to his wife. Now, us married men, we think that's wise. It may be expedient, but it may not be all so wise all the time. But he must have thought that she was right. That the heir that he was promised would come, could possibly come, through a surrogate woman. After all, the covenant promise that God had made with him had only been specific in saying that it was to be of his offspring, not their offspring. Now, this is where those phrases I gave to you at the beginning, they come into play. It's seldom easy to do the right thing, and it's seldom right to do the easy thing. And alongside of that, there is no right way to do a wrong thing. You see, Sarai was not proposing to Abram that he just have a fling with her handmaid, that she just become a surrogate mother. Sarai knew the promise of the Lord given to her husband and used her human understanding of how life works. I mean, she looked at herself, the barrenness of her womb, and the fact that she was past the age of natural childbearing. And she came with this godly plan to help God out. She came up with a god godly alternative, something that seemed logical to her. It only makes sense. And Sarai knew the godly mandate of marriage, that the two should become one, as told to us in Genesis 2.24. And since God was most certainly responsible for her being barren, he was, and at the same time, he was the one that promised to make Abram a mighty nation. She used those two facts, one plus one equals two, to come up with her logic and wisdom for a godly plan. She had her husband marry her slave. We can see the error in her thinking, in her logic. And we can wonder, what in the world was she thinking? And more than that, what in the world was Abram thinking? How in the world did he think that this was a good idea, a God idea? And we are given this account as an example, as a warning for us in our lives. An example in that we should never use human logic or understanding to dumb down God. When we do, 
every time that we do, we will be wrong. We have to allow the hard edges of God to remain, always. We are not given the right to, to actually circumvent the word of God. We must submit to the word of God. Submit to God being above and outside of our thinking. Submit to being okay with saying, I don't know concerning God. Because if we can ever, if we could ever fully explain God, if you ever think that you can grab a book off of a shelf and it's like, mastering the New Testament. I can master the New Testament. If you ever think that you can master the word of God, God's not God at that point. We must always submit to Deuteronomy 29.29, which tells us the secret things belong to Yahweh our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. And in context, that verse is being given by Moses, speaking to the children of God concerning the destruction, the destruction of the peoples that lived in the land that he had promised to Abram. Speaking of the 400 years that they, the children of Abram, had spent in slavery to the Egyptians. And then the miracles that he, God, used in redeeming them from the Egyptians. And what he is saying in context is this. That God made a covenant with Abram. When, and then with the children of Israel. And in both covenants, there were laws given. To Abram, the law was given to separate from his family, to live in a land that will be given to him, to be circumcised in his flesh. To the children of Israel, it was the Ten Commandments specifically, and then the laws of worship and sacrifice. That was the revealed part of those verses. And the things that these are the things that belong to us. The things that he has commanded us to do. But the how of these promises of the covenant, those are the secret things that belong to God. And when you understand that Deuteronomy verse in context, you can understand how it applies specifically to the new covenant as well. You see, we are given truths concerning the salvation of God. That all that call on his name, all that confess with their mouth that Jesus as Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved, Romans 10, 9. Alongside of that, that no one can come to the Father but through the Son, John 14, 6. And alongside of that, that no one can come unless the Father calls them, John 6, 44. And that all that are called will come. John 6, 37. And at the same time, we are given the command to go and make disciples, Matthew 28, 19. And there's always a danger when humans try to help God. And there's one other thing that I want to point out to you guys that is given to us in these verses, a danger that is evidenced in this account. The danger of being a Lone Ranger Christian. See, Abram and Sarai didn't have a church community to hold them accountable. They, they to have a church community around them to do life with. It seems that all they had was each other. And you're thinking, what's wrong with that? But can you not see the danger of this? 
of isolating yourself and just using the wisdom of just you and your spouse and trying to figure out God and how he wants you to live your life. How even the most sanctified of saints, how can they be, how they can be so close to a situation that they can begin to use human logic and wisdom and not the faith that, and wisdom that comes from God alone. And what was the fruit that was born of this scheme to help God out? Verses 5 and 6. Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave you my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she can see, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Now the sin of Sarai has been made manifest. And it's been made manifest in jealousy and then anger towards her husband. What she seemed like a great idea when she thought of it, when it was put into action, produced nothing but bitter fruit. And what we need to understand here is that since Sarai was using human logic and wisdom in helping God out, she was overcome then by worldly ideas, worldly thoughts. Earlier she said that God had prevented her from having children, but she wasn't looking to God now. She's looking at her husband as the cause of her affliction. And in verse 6 then, we see the actions of a very weak man. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. And the sin of Abram was revealed in the weakness in which he ruled his house. He was supposed to be the head over Sarai, her physical and spiritual protector. We have many New Testament verses telling us, warning us, admonishing us as to why and how we are to lead our wives. But Abram had them as well. He knew the creation account, that God had created man and given man, given him dominion over the rest of creation, that God had given the man the responsibility of naming all animals, and even that created woman as well. And husbands, understand this as well. Your wife's spiritual well-being and her spiritual actions, all of them, are a reflection of your spiritual leadership. In the lives of Abram and Sarah, she was confused about her status as the mother of the nation that was promised to Abram. She was confused about how all this was going to come to pass. And she was confused because Abram was confused. Because he didn't hold fast to that promise that had been made to him. Because he was a bit blurry in his conviction that God would not use an illegitimate relationship in the fulfilling of his promise to him. Because he was a bit confused, a bit vague on how this was all going to happen. His wife was more so. And in her confusion, she acted. And because of Abram's confusion, he went along with it. He listened to her human logic and then suffered the consequences of doing this when she lashes out at him. And all the fault falls to him. And he's the one who is held responsible for all of it, and rightly so. 
And verse 6 then ends the direct involvement of Abram and Sarai in this chapter. But before we move past verse 6, and the couple who become the father and mother of faith, I want to point out a couple other things here. The first is that both of these individuals are flawed individuals. Severely flawed. They are sinners, as already demonstrated to us. And just as we were shown in chapter 15, their sin did not affect their standing with God. We're told in verse 6 of chapter 15, he believed the Lord and he, and he God, can ma- com, uh, counted it as to him, Abram, as righteousness. And then in verse 7, Abram once again tells God, I'm unsure about the promise that you've been given, that, I've give, that you've been given to me. And that doubt did not negate the reality of the righteousness of God in his life. And neither, neither did the sin of him having sex with Hagar, nor did the sin of poorly leading Sarai. Neither could remove him from the exalted position that he had been given in Christ. And this is a biblical truth that we need, we would do well to reconcile in our life. Saints, you need to understand that you are a sinner and you will sin. In fact, if you do not think this is truth, and this is the problem in our heads, is that we think that sin is this huge, bad, ugly actions that we do. We don't see that every breath that we actually take is sin. Every breath. And we know that it is sin because Jesus told us, you shall love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind, Matthew 22, 37. That's an explanation of sin. And if you do that, then you are sin-free. And no one will ever achieve that. Ever. And when you look at yourself with that in mind, how do you stack up to that requirement? Do you actually think that there will ever be one second, one nanosecond in your life that you will ever love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind? And at the same time, in the same way, we are commanded Be holy as he is holy, 1 Peter 1.16. We are commanded, pursue righteousness, 1 Timothy 6.11. We are told that if we do not obey God, that we are not of him, Exodus 19.5. That those who do love God will keep his commandments, John 14.21. We have to reconcile those two things. Because we are supposed to be so sure of our salvation that we have in Christ. So sure that we are the righteousness of Christ. That we are supposed to be able to say alongside of our brother Paul. I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate me from the love of Christ, 
Romans 8, 38 and 39. We must be able to reconcile these truths. We must be able to understand that salvation is not of us, that our standing with God is not found in our good deeds. We make ourselves feel better about ourselves because of our actions. But our actions, our feelings, will never, can never change, alter, or affect the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus for you. If you have been saved, it doesn't matter where you are at the end of your life, what great works you think that you have done for the Lord. That day that you die, God will love you no more than he loved you that moment that he revealed how sinful and vile you were before you confessed that Jesus was your Savior. We need to reconcile these things because it is all in Christ Jesus. Our salvation is in him, not in us. Our righteousness is an imputed one, as told to us in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's not in us, of us, from us. We don't own it. We can't control it. We can't change it or alter it or lose it either. We will never lose our salvation because of sin in our lives. Never. However, we need to be warned that sin has consequences, that actions have consequences, and that we are not free from receiving in this life the wages of sin. There's another saying I'm going to throw out to you today. It's this, experience is the best teacher. In other words, you learn by doing but it's the wise individual who learns from others' experiences. They are the ones that don't have to touch the match to learn that fire burns. They learn from others' experiences. And this is why we are given this account from today. In order that we can learn from these experiences, the ones that Abram and Sarai had. That relationship between Abram and Sarai was always, from that point forward, tainted by the sin of them because of this. And worse yet, the fruit that was born of their sin still plagues the entire world. You see, the, the product of this union between Abram and Hagar was this son, Ishmael, who will become the father of a people group, who to this day, they still revere this man, Abram, would have been sworn enemies both of the Jewish people and of the Christian people as well. Sin has consequences, and this is reality, and why we are warned not to actively continue in sin. Foremost, because those who have been redeemed are no longer children of darkness. And in our fight against the sin that is in us, the, that fight, that fighting against it, is proof of the love of God in our life that he has regenerated our hearts toward him. But also we're warned because the wages of sin are death. I will tell you, young man, if you continue in sin, God will allow you to receive what you are earning. Be warned. 
The wages of sin is death. Always. They're summed up by death. The death that separated us from God. Or in the death of God. In order that we can be reconciled to him. Either way, our sin always produces things. There are no such things as morally neutral actions. And there are no actions that don't produce some form of fruit. That's why Jesus spoke of, of, of laying up treasure in Matthew 6, where he said, what we do here now is either laying up treasure here now or treasure there later. Either way, our actions have consequences. And we must keep this truth in mind as we live out the salvation of God in our lives. Now, Finally, we can deal with verses 17 or 7 through 16. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant to Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Now, I want to clear something up. Hagar wasn't a servant. She was a slave. She had been given to Sarai in Egypt. And when Abram left Egypt, she didn't have a choice of whether or not she wanted to go or not. She was forced to go. She was no free agent. She had no say over the matter. Where, uh, over the matter of where she lived or even how she lived. And she had no say in the matter about whether or not she was going to be given to Abram as a wife either. Sarah rightly said that God was the one that was caused her barrenness. And in the same manner, he was also the one who was behind Hagar being a slave, behind being forced to marry Abram. And this God spoke to this slave. Remember a couple weeks ago I mentioned that it's kind of odd how we have definite opinions concerning Lot and Abram? even though we have very little information about either one of them. And yet we think favorably about Abram, and we think negatively about Lot. But what about Sarai and Hagar? How do you think about them? What do you think of them? Which one do you have a favorable view of, and which one do you have a negative view of, and why? Well, when we're told that Hagar looks on contempt with Sarai, we think ill of her because of it. But really, did Sarai deserve any better than that? We have negative thoughts about Hagar. We are, but we, at the same time, we are never told that God ever reveals himself to Sarai, that he ever speaks to her, but he, as he does to Hagar, both here, and he's going to do it again in chapter 21. We think, Sarai was of the elect. We assume this to be so. And we also assume that Hagar was not. But let us see how this slave woman acts when presented with the reality of God. Verses 10 through 13. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction, and he shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand, 
Does he have a choice about that? His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. The first thing that God tells this woman who is finally free, this slave woman who's been taken from her land, she's finally free from her master, this woman who wasn't very kind to her, and that man who she'd been forced to marry and have sex with. She's finally free, and the first thing that God commands her to do, return to your captivity. Submit to Sarai. There's no explanation by God to her. There are no promises that Sarai is going to treat you better, oh, that your life is going to be better. She was just told, go. And she went. And we also know that when she returned, she revealed to Abram, and presumably Sarai as well, that God had made himself known to her. That he had told her that she would have a son and that they were to call him Ishmael. Interesting what Abram named his son. And we know from verse 13 that she truly saw God for who he is, the God who sees and looks after people. And then this then presents our final conundrum for today. Was Hagar saved? Because she acted like it. I mean, she submitted to the will of the Lord. God spoke to her, revealed himself to her. Was she saved? We who hold to this thing called Reformed theology, we say and we believe that outside of the direct working of the heart, uh, in the heart of a person, that men are dead in our trespasses and sin, and that we cannot and will not come to God because we are in bondage, a slave to sin, in the family of Satan. So does this not mean then that Hagar was saved? I mean, she saw God. She believed that he was the one who saw and was looking after her, and he obeyed, and she obeyed his commands. Are these not evidences that she was saved? And once again, this is why we must submit to a God-centered, God-glorifying understanding of the Bible and not a man-centered one. Why you must understand that while God is good and he is good, amen, he is not easy. Not because he's flip or changes his mind. We know that he never changes, Malachi 3.6. But he's not easy because he is God. He's holy and he's sovereign. He is the creator and we are the created. And at best, at best, we are just regenerated sinners. And even in our regenerated state, we cannot fully understand God, master the New Testament. Even in our resurrected, free from sin bodies, even then, when we stand before Christ in our glory, in his revealed glory, even then, we will not fully get God. He will always be outside and above and over us. 
and we will always be learning and experiencing new and deeper truths concerning him. And we would do well now, we would do well now to get used to submitting ourselves to the word of God and not trying to build manufactured little boxes with which to place him in. You see, the Bible is always full. It's full of people that God either uses or speaks to that don't fit our pattern or mold of a person that we would say is saved. Take, for instance, Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of Babylon that sacked Jerusalem, that made Israel a puppet state of his, and who was by all accounts a ruthless and evil man. But he's also the man that's called the Lord's servant in Jeremiah 25, 9. And he was also given dreams by the Lord on at least two occasions. And as we read in the book of Daniel, in chapter 4 of that book, we hear, we hear this man say, How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Daniel 4, 3. And we also know that God spoke to Balaam, as told to us in Numbers chapter 22, that evil prophet. Both of these statements, the ones made by these women, are correct. God is the one who is sovereign over the barrenness of Sarai. And he's also the God that sees and is sovereign over the unborn son of Hagar that slave of Sarai. And all the actions that are told to us that happened in our chapter from today, even the sins of Sarai and Abram, they are all under the sovereign will and control of God. And they, even they, fall under the truth of Isaiah 14, 24. Yahweh of hosts is sworn, surely as I have planned, so will it be. As I have purposed, so will it stand. But you're asking yourself, but was Hagar saved, David? Was she a child of God? Because we have our opinions about one way or the other based upon our human logic and emotions. I mean, she's a slave, okay, and that, that goes in the not saved column. And she looks on contempt at her master, another check in that box. And she's the mother of Ishmael, <laughs> big check, make that too, in that not, not saved box. And because of that, we're confident that she's not of the elect of God. And yet we have the word of God that tells us of this God who speaks to her, reveals himself to her, and commands her to, and she obeys him. So was she saved? But what does the Bible say about that? We are never told. And for this reason, we need to not stand on one side or the other on this issue. We need to, we are forced to. We are supposed to say, I don't know. God desires us to stand on his word and proclaim that, proclaim Concerning Hagar, I don't know, but I do know this. Salvation belongs to the Lord, Proverbs 3, 8. 
and told to us again in Psalm 62.1, and again, Jonah 2. It belongs to him, not to us. It's just like his righteousness. His salvation is his to give. And we, we must submit to this God, the one who is sovereign over all things, over the barrenness of Sarai and the life of Hagar and that very flawed father of our faith, that one who we are told of in Romans 4, that he didn't weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarai's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. If you ever stop and look at the life of of Abram prior to Isaac being born, take everything that happens there and match it up to Romans 4, you'll understand, You'll, you'll get what this means. How that all works out. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but it's for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Saints, the point of this, the point of this story, our lives are messy. And we look at men, these men that are on these big stages, that have these big churches, and we look at those guys and we say, man, those guys are clean. They've lived clean lives. But they're sinners just like us. Our lives are messy. And God is sovereign over them all. And the tapestry that God weaves with our lives will never fit into your preconceived box as to who God is, how he acts, or even what he's going to be like in your life. God is God. He is the God who is the God of our righteousness. The God who gave himself for our reconciliation, and the God of our salvation. And the longer that we walk with the Lord, the more confident we will be about his salvation, about his love, about him holding us fast as as we look back at our lives and see how he has held us fast. But at the same time, At the same time that we can say, look how he's held me all these years. We're going to wonder at the manner in which he does these things. Is these things. And we'll wonder more and more at the God who is sovereign over the hard things like barrenness, illness, death. I pray that it will cause us to wonder over 
this amazing gift that he's given us in his salvation. Let's pray.